to the ASIAL podcast and this episode I have with me uh, Chris Delaney from ASIAL. Chris, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. And we have Peter Strong. Now, Peter, for those people who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about you. Oh, I'm the, yeah, and, and hello, I'm Peter Strong. I'm the CEO of the Council of Small Business Organisations of Australia, the COSBOA. Uh, it's a group uh, where our members are associations, so it's a a peak body, a member of associations, and we. Uh, the reason we were set up way back in 1977 was to be a an unambiguous voice for small business. So we don't talk about big business issues. We only really focus on the small business issues, and that's what we exist for. Fantastic. And uh, on the podcast this episode, we are talking about supply chain management and the importance of ethical procurement procedures. So, Chris, this is a uh, an interesting discussion. Why are we talking about procurement and ethical procedures? Oh, how long is a piece of string? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, from ASEAL's point of view, um, we've, for a very, very long time, uh, spoken to regulators, uh, governments, about problems that are that begin at the top of the supply chain. Uh, uh, ASIAL, as you know, is a registered organisation of employers in the security industry. Uh, 85% of our members are small business. Um, they're constantly applying for tenders with uh, with government organisations like local councils, state government and so on. Uh, and th- the really big issue that they find is that the price makers, the top of the supply chain, really drive what happens right down through the supply chain. And in our industry, uh, margins are very, very low uh, and the price makers are constantly telling us to sharpen our pencils. We think that creates a flow-on effect uh, which ends up in people at the very bottom end of the supply chain, the employees, not being paid the correct wages and the employers of those people, small business, not being able to compete in a... uh, on, on that ubiquitous level playing field. Excellent. All right, so just give me two seconds here while I climb up onto my soapbox because this is where I start to get going. Um, and Peter, perhaps you can weigh in on this. One of, one of my biggest pet peeves in this industry is that you talk to the security managers within large corporate organisations and you try and explain to them, listen, you realise that by just constantly allowing procurement to drive go cheaper, go cheaper, Bring t- take points off, we want better margin and all the rest of it. All they're introducing is reintroducing risk back into the organisation because they're going perhaps with a company that they hadn't previously used before. They're bringing in cheaper contractors, which means that you know the, uh, they run the risk that on costs aren't going to be met properly and all of these other things. At, at what point and I apologise if I'm derailing this conversation in the first five minutes, but at what point does a security manager have to turn around to the board of directors and say, okay, if we're going to go with a cheaper tender or if we're just going to worry about points on margin, here's all of the risks that I believe that we're reintroducing to this organisation and I want the board to sign this document saying we acknowledge that we're reintroducing all of these risks and we are taking responsibility for that. And Chris, I'll throw it open to you if you want to start (laughs) that. Oh, yes. Well, if if I can just sort of segue into some discussions we had with the Fair Work Ombudsman some years ago. Yep. Um, uh, we, were, we went to the Fair Work Ombudsman and said to them, look, uh, we've found that many of our members can't compete in the environment of tenders with local government because local government will go for the cheapest price uh, on the basis that they're going for value for money. Now, they're, they're two very, very different matters, cheapest price and... Uh, and uh, value, f- excuse me, value for money. So we went to the Fair Work Ombudsman and said, we need to do something about that. Mm-hmm. And to their credit, um, we set up what was called the Local Government Procurement Initiative and spent a year or so educating uh, local government about that um, and then spent another year prosecuting usually small security companies for not paying the right amount of money. But nobody ever prosecuted anybody from local government. 
Yeah. And until that happens, until the price maker gets prosecuted, perhaps under Section 550 of the Fair Work Act, which is all about accessorial liability and so on, until that happens, there'll be that push down the line all the time. Yep. Now, we, we don't condone any small business or large business or any other type of, of business uh, breaking the law. We don't condone underpayment of wages uh, by any stretch. But we understand why it happens. And for a, uh, a an employer to compete and do the right thing, it becomes increasingly difficult when those are who are doing the wrong thing, including the price makers, yep. when, they're, when they're not held to account for it. Yeah, and look... Uh Peter, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on this because it seems to me that one of the, the key issues here, and I've heard more stories than I, I care to sort of admit to through security solutions over the years in various articles that we have written, where company A says, look, I was in a tender up against company B and I saw the price that company B put in for that tender and I know that there is no way that company B could possibly be meeting all of their on costs if they're offering that price. And I advised the person putting out the tender that this was the case and I showed them proof that this was the case and they still went with company B anyway. So at what point do we look at the ethical side of, of procurement here and what are the key ingredients to understanding you know, ethical procurement practices? Well, uh, uh, they're very good points, by the way, and, and we've, uh, again, been in the game a long time and we've seen lots of issues here. Now, the Fair Work Ombudsman some years ago, uh, they had a look at the trolley collectors that, that were working for Coles and Woolworths, hmm. and they realised that there's no way that they could pay award wages for the amount of money that they were being paid by uh, one of those big supermarkets. Yeah. So they actually went after the supermarket and took the supermarket to court and won, um, which, which sent a message then that when you when you are a price setter, you do have some responsibilities. Now, I don't think that's been carried through to the same level that we want it to be carried through uh, in legislation. But all these points you've made are so are so real, and it comes back to the people in who are doing the tendering who are making the decisions to understand, as you say, their ethical responsibilities. Now, governments are just as bad in this. Um, I remember one uh, tender, and this won't be the only story, where uh, the company that won it could not possibly deliver what was what was asked of them based on the money that they, they bid. They got the project, and after six months, they couldn't do it anymore, and the, the uh, government agency came out to other tenderers who had lost and asked them to complete the task on the same money that the original tender so there, there was a complete failure by the ten, by the, the company or by the, the department that put out the tender. They had no idea about the world. And I want to come back on this ethical issue to where this comes from, the ideology that drives some people to say it's all about price and about nothing else. And that's, that's basically what the problem is here. And that ideology is driven by, like, say, fair economics, by the extreme, like, say, fair economics, it's driven by people that understand textbooks, but they don't understand reality. And in Cosboa, we've been confronting these people quite aggressively. So when someone says to me, that's business, get over it, they don't say it a second time. If someone says it'll only take five minutes, if someone says if you're clever, you'll you'll make money. If they say all those very shallow things, then they do hear from us in a very aggressive response. But we all need to come back on that response, and I think we need to come together and go out to um, the big business, and let me say the Business Council of Australia and COSBOA have quite a good relationship at the moment. I know the BCA cops it in the next sometimes, but we are looking to work together to make sure the systems work. Now, we can go out to the local government association and say, right, part of the problem, as you just said, around security, but also around cleaning and a whole range of other things, is when you put the tender out, you look at the price. And we're telling you that quite often that price is not possible to achieve without breaking the law. And we want to come up with a solution to that. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, there's got to be a point, surely, where the onus comes back on the employer, tenderer, whoever it may be, where if they know on reasonable grounds, based on information received from people around them or their own research or whatever, that 
they can't be doing the right thing or they're not doing the right thing, then really what what incentive is there for them to do the right thing unless there are legal ramifications for it? And I, I thought, and Chris, maybe this is a question for you, I thought there was work being done in this area to bring in laws that basically said if we find out they're underpaying and they were aware that they were underpaying, or even if they weren't aware that they were underpaying, there are possible financial penalties. Well, that's Section 550 of the Fair Work Act. It, it exists there. It's called accessorial liability, where people who, are, who know or should reasonably have known that a breach is taking place, then they can be joined to that breach. Now, it's a lot harder to do, I guess, for the Fair Work Ombudsman than it is just to see it in the legislation. But we, when we talked to Natalie James, who was the then Fair, Fair Work Ombudsman, uh, we, we worked a number. Now, we, we had to, to get through... Um, trade practices legislation to make sure that we weren't setting prices. But we worked a number with, with, uh, with the Fair Work Ombudsman that said, look, if the price that you're being offered as the price to the client is less than X, uh, then something's wrong. Yep. If it's too good to be true, it probably isn't true. You know, it doesn't pass the sniff test. Now, that's an easy number to work out. Yeah. Uh, for any small business, look at your wages, look at what it costs to put an employee on the ground, add your on costs, which might be anything between 25 and, say, 30%, looking at things like uh, sick leave and annual leave, replacement of uniforms, etc., etc., insurances and so on. And there are plenty of costs for the security industry, security licences and, and business licences and and what have you. Now, it's pretty easy to work out that if somebody comes to you and says, I can do this for, say, $35 an hour, yep. then that, and it's a 24-7 job, it's not going to happen for that rate and have the employee get the right amount of money. But there are lots of complications in all of that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are zombie EBAs out there, EBAs that have been around for a long time that have... that remain in place until varied or rescinded. Now, they can have a low rate in them. Well, this is this is an interesting point because I have, uh, I've come across, and sorry, Peter, I, I, uh, were you wanting to say something there or? No, no, look, I, I agree. As I say, I, I will always come back to, we've got to go back to the attitude and the ideology that drives some of this. Now, we ran a round table ourselves uh, last year on the definition of a contractor, which mm. is very much connected to all of this. And we had Chris Jordan there, or the, the tax commissioner. We had Natalie James there. We had uh, people there from the Fair Work uh, Commission and from industry associations. We talked about it. Now, even within that group, there was this, this discussion about, well, when is a business a business and when isn't it? Now, if someone wants to, to go in and make a loss early on, just so they can establish themselves, that's normal business practice. And, of course, we're saying, well, that's one thing. But, but when you're actually bidding, and then you're employing someone, that's another thing. That's not you as an independent contractor, that's you as an employer. And we need to confront the ideologists who sit there and seem to think, as I say, that uh, things will sort themselves out, the world's uh, a complicated place, and that's just the way it is. They're the ones that are causing problems for us out there. Can I come back? I did some work with the World Bank many years ago now, and when you put a tender in with them, they actually had a rule. You had to show that you were going to make a profit. I didn't want people coming along doing it without making a profit because what they found is they didn't survive and they didn't continue to use the skills they've learned in whatever the project was. So they actually said you had to prove that you were going to make a profit. Now, I'm yeah. not saying we should do that, but if you're not going to make a profit, why are you bidding for it? What's the issue? And I think the, the government agencies probably need to lead the way here. And we're talking about local government as much as anybody. They need to lead the way, but I think also big business needs to come in on this and we're, we're going to go on after this, um, after this podcast. I'm going to certainly make some calls about how do we manage this together to make sure that a big business does, as with Coles and Woolworths, they don't get caught out because they're just taking the cheapest quote. What can they do to make sure they're not going to be uh, hunted by the Fair Work Ombudsman uh, when they thought they were doing the right thing? Yeah, Peter, you, you make some really good points. Um, the... You should be in business to make a profit. 
Absolutely. And whoever you supply to should recognise that it's good business practice to make a profit. You know, you've got to pour money back into your business. You've got to have contingencies for that rainy day, if you like. And you can't train and develop your people and do all of the things that you really need to do to provide a good service unless you do make a profit. Yep. Now, and that profit shouldn't be at the expense of an employee. No. Uh, it, it should be a reasonable profit. Uh, you made another point about contractors and what is a contractor. And, you know, we've had the gig economy and Foodora and all of that sort of stuff. But one of, the, one of the big issues in the security industry, we find, is the use of what we call ABN holders. Yep. And, look, nine times out of ten, if you applied a, a proper industrial definition to those arrangements, they'd fall over. They'd be sham contracting arrangements. Can you explain what that means for people who may not be familiar with the term? The term sham, sham contract. No, just an ABN, ABN. Hold holder. An ABN holder is a person, an individual who has an Australian business number. Yep. They're not a proprietary limited company. Right. They're an individual who provides their service usually to another organisation um, and in any, uh, any proper uh, definition that would be an employer-employee relationship and not a principal contractor, subcontractor relationship. Right. And there are technical aspects to all of that. But in, in Queensland and in Victoria in particular, the legislation to deal with uh, having a security business licence uh, allows the ABN holder to have a security business licence without having to... Um, meet all of the requirements that perhaps a proprietary limited company or a company with more people in it would have. That seems to encourage uh, people to use ABN holders instead of using direct employees. And there's a big problem associated with all of that. Um, and it, you know, it's, part of, it's, it's all part of that, um, uh, uh, that vulnerable worker type situation. Yep. So... Coming back to government, though, I mean, what role does government play in all of this? Because if our own government, whether it be local council, whether it be state government, whether it be federal government, if they're not even adhering to the practices of ensuring that people are paying their contractors the right amount in the industry, I mean, surely it begins and ends with just that one simple thing. Hey, government, how about you do the right thing? And then we can work out from there well, what should they actually be doing to govern the industry? What is the role of government in all of this, Chris? Uh, as, a, as a user of the service or as, as a, a user as of the service regulator? and as both a regulator and a user of the service? I mean, ASIL, I believe, is, is the one that goes out and lobbies government on all this sort of stuff. I mean, what is your vision for what they need to be doing here? Well, I think we've got enough regulation. Some regulation could be changed, and we know that in Victoria they're going to have a look at the Security Licensing Act uh, in the next year or so, so that might help a little bit in that environment. But there's certainly enough legislation. The Fair Work Act, Act gives enough power to the Fair Work Commission, the Fair Work Ombudsman, uh, to deal with uh, uh, these breaches. Now, we've just added another layer with the uh, labour hire licensing, uh, and, but it's just another layer of regulation. We need to have the regulators go out and enforce, educate and enforce the regulations that already exist. We've been dealing with these matters. I know Peter's been around for a long while. I've been involved in security for at least 30 years now. Um, industrial relations for nearly 50 years. Maybe I should get out. I'm getting too old. <laughs> but we, I, I was looking at a letter that I wrote to the Fair Work Ombudsman in 2016, and that's only a couple of years ago, admittedly. Mm. And, and that talked about the local government issue. Nothing has changed. Yep. These that's, situations that's right. have been no, going nothing, on for a long time. Yep. Nothing has changed. This is the issue that we... I suppose we've become quite aggressive about is to go back to that base problem, which is why. What's the, what's the problem with the people making these decisions? Now, they don't, this is one of the issues, they don't understand business. I'll, I'll, I'll 
say that until I'm proven wrong. And you, you see examples, um, and we can all pull them out, and a lot of your members will have examples where they will be told that their bid was too expensive and that um, they, I know one case where I was, I was asked, why do you uh, have you got so much money being spent on travel for particular projects? Because they didn't spend that much on travel when they traveled. But this is a public service. And they said they got, say, $150 a day for per diems or whatever. And why were we asking for more? And you had to explain to them that in the background, they've got someone organizing their travel. They've got someone paying them. They've got people doing all these sorts of things. And so do we. And that we have to pay them to do that. They just didn't understand the way business works and the cost. I think you mentioned that earlier. The costs that are involved, the, the, the background costs, the on costs, all those sorts of things, is beyond them. Yeah. So they need to be educated, and we're spending time on this about how business works and why it needs to be, why they need to make profit. Some of them question that. Why they need to make a profit and what a profit consists of, what uh, gross profit is, what net profit is, those sorts of business issues. They need to understand that before they're going to be able to really um, assess tenders. Now, the people that, that assess tenders for building bridges and those sorts of things, they normally get it because they have a whole different way of doing things. They often pay a company to put a tender in. So they'll have a, they'll go out to you know, buy tanks and those sorts of things. They'll, they'll assist the companies with that. But when we come down to what, what people see as mundane, you know, they're buying a consultant, consultancy or cleaning, or in our case, we're talking about security, they just say, oh, that's just a business, it'll be fine. They don't understand what goes on behind it. And that's what we've got to make sure that they do understand so how do we change that? How do we get them to understand what's going on? The Well, number one, it's associations doing that. We've been pushing big time, and, and good on you for doing this, about the role of associations. So it's about changing attitudes within public sectors, within uh, councils, etc., about the role of associations and our value. Now, you, you gave the example before of someone going to a, a tendering body saying, how can they deliver this? How can they deliver this for the amount of money that you've, you've now taken them on? And the answer is, oh, look, you're only jealous because you didn't win, which I find quite offensive, and I yep. think most people would, especially professional businesses, as most of us are. And so that's where associations have got to become probably more aggressive or work together more uh, and make sure we're on the same page on this because we've got to remember there's some associations, big ones, big bodies, who believe in laissez-faire economics and believe that that's just the way it is out there. And they are, we have to confront them among ourselves. That's why I mentioned before about the Business Council. I will approach them and have a talk to them about this. It's not an issue that they would see in their members tendering to government. As I said, they're big and they, that's a different issue. They're very large. Uh, it's an issue for their members being tended to. Now, if they can get it right and become good practice, then we put that back to governments and the local government and say, here's your best practice. Now, the other thing that I think we need to do is go across the, the industries that are, are high risk and say, okay, here's your base rate. But this, this is very dangerous, I know, but here's what you should be looking at if someone's going to win a tender. Right now, if someone cuts these rates, we don't know how they could possibly do it without underpaying the staff. Now, the only people that can come up with that is industry. It's your association mm. that can come up with that. But they need to approach this. We need to sit down together and come up with these sorts of answers, no matter how hard it is. Uh, and the enemy of that is the ideologists. Um, and at the moment, uh, we're seeing it in uh, hospitality as well, um, where they're underpaying. We're seeing it in uh, ethnic communities, where um, and that's uh, where different Groups will underpay uh, students from overseas, and we need to confront all that so that we can change the attitude, but it needs us to work together to do it. Yeah, but it seems to me, uh, to go back a step, we'll, we were talking about before governments not understanding business, and there's a, there's a difference. Business isn't just business. We've got large business, we've got medium, and we've got small business, and there's going to be different challenges with each of those three tiers according to procurement. To come to your point, Peter, Chris, is it possible for an association like ASIL to go out to its members and say, you know, how do we develop a base rate that 
taking all of these things into account because I'm going to profess a certain level of ignorance here. It's been a long time since I've had to deal with this and the industry's changed a lot, so I couldn't tell you the answer to this question. But is it possible to develop a base rate? Because, you know... I hear stories time and time and time again where com- companies are out there operating on margins of 4 5 or 6%. And that's good. Yep. And that's good. You know, if, if that was a, a cow, you'd take it out the back and shoot it. I mean, how do you run a business on 4%? Well, this cow is getting shot on a regular basis. And yeah. uh, Look, I agree with what Peter said, and, but to answer your question, We've got to be careful under the Trade Practices Act that we don't go price setting. So mm-hmm. that, that's the first thing. Absolutely. Yep. But yep. But you you can, and we did when we talked to the Fair Work Ombudsman in the first instance, and you'll see from uh, some of the some of the, the speeches that Natalie James did that she mentions numbers in in that. I'm not going to mention those numbers now because they're old numbers anyway. And we've got yep. there's been a lot of change. We can certainly come up with a with a number that says to our members, look, these are the sorts of things that you should be considering when you put together a tender and the amounts of money that you're going to to charge. You should consider, you know, your wages and expenses, on costs, insurances, all of those sorts of things, and a modest profit. And you should be able to outlay that to your client and say. This is how I've come up with all of this, and you can mm-hmm. prove it by using uh, rate schedules, say, from the Fair Work Ombudsman or from ASIL. We put out rate schedules to make it easier for our members. And we also put out a, what we call a client pack. Mm. And that client pack includes a fair bit of information about how to choose a, a security company, the things to look for, reputation, etc., etc., price, how to, how to avoid sham contracting arrangements, how to look further into the tender yep. so that you know that this is a valid tender. Yeah, because I was going to say, you talk about putting together a pack for your members, talking about this is what you should be charging, these are the on-costs, this and that and the other, but maybe I'm ignorant, but I would assume no security company wants to run on a 4% margin. Like Every security company out there is going to want to charge more. It's about what's being driven from the consumer's end. So surely to me, this is a consumer issue. It's how do we get consumers to understand that, you know, all no one wins a price war. The moment you go out trying to just drive down price, looking for cheaper and cheaper and cheaper quotes, all you're going to end up with is a really cheap service that may as well just be shirt stuff for security. Yeah, but John, it is, in some ways, security is a grudge purchase. Yep. Yep. You know, the, the the pub has it because the police make sure that they have to have it. Uh, the uh, industrial building owner has it because his insurance company is going to give him a rebate for having it. Yep. Uh, and it's also one of those purchases where you don't see necessarily what you're getting. If you've never had a break-in, yep. do you really need the security guy who's been shaking your gate for six months? Sorry to interrupt, but I was going to say, I I, I get what you're saying, but I think that's an older way of looking at it. And I I get what you're saying, but smart security companies now understand that security can be a value add if it's done well. Take the pub, for example. If you've got good door people and good internal security people that are more customer service oriented than they are security oriented, and they're really friendly and they welcome people in, and they pick trouble in the line out the front of the club long before it happens so that it doesn't happen and they make people feel secure, then just like people choose to pay a premium to fly Qantas because it's the safest airline in the world, people will go to that pub because it's a super safe pub and they're actually creating income and all the rest of it. It's about how we get the, the consumers to understand the and price in the value of that service as opposed to just going, ah, oh, whatever, I just want cheap. So look, some do, yep. but unfortunately the majority don't. I mean, you could go to a publican any day of the week and say, why do you ask the security company to pay its employees less than the award mm. when you wouldn't do it with your bar staff? Yep. It's yep. because they don't value the service. Uh, they don't really want it. Yep. They're more interested in selling the alcohol 
than they are in stopping the problem. You, if you look at the the pubs and clubs in Sydney that sell the most alcohol, you'll find that they're also the pubs and clubs in Sydney that are on the top ten list of you know, violent places. Yep, and, and and that's a sad fact of life. But we you know we're not knocking pubs and clubs. No, no, no. Uh, there, it, it's education, but I think it's also prosecution. You know, sometimes you've got to hurt people to make them wake up to the fact that they can't be involved in sham arrangements or unlawful arrangements where employees are getting less than what they should get paid as a minimum and employers are not getting the return on investment they should get for providing the service to you. Sure, but before we get to a discussion around penalties, which I think is a really important part of what we're looking at here, you know... You, what what it seems to me that you have is you have large businesses in the security industry and you have small businesses in the security industry. And as a large business, I can afford to perhaps offer a range of things that small businesses can't, like ensuring that I'm always going to have people available, ensuring that I can offer side benefits, ensuring that we can offer a standard of service and all the rest of it, that sometimes smaller companies that are just looking at trying to get into the industry and win some of these tenders think the only way I can compete is on price because I can't yeah. beat all of these other people. So if I'm a small business, Peter, what are my issues around procurement? How do I compete with some of these bigger guys? Well, and that, again, it's a very good point. When you're just establishing yourself, uh, you, you, you have to compete with them. But again, with small business, we compete on quality. We compete on the personality of the person running it. We can, you know, we compete on on our availability uh, and our speed of reaction. Um, and that's that's what and that doesn't matter what what we're in when we're competing against Coles and Woolworths. It's the same thing, and they're very cheap compared to certain you know, other supermarkets. But people go to those other supermarkets because they're closed, because it's good service, because there are some cheap things there they want, whatever it might be. Um, there is a reason they go there. So that's what we've got to push out there. And I, I come back to the associations all the time that, that the good associations, and look what, what, what you're doing here, they're out there working hard with the truth, with reality, with their members. And that's what we've got to, what we've got to um, push to the government, to others. And that's why Confirm exists in a way. I mean, we're a very small organisation, there's two of us. But our members do all the work with their with the small businesses. My job's to go and make sure that the voice is heard and it's the right voice. And we're spending a lot of time at the moment about the role of associations and governments having to listen. And you're not listening to as much as well, you know that as much as you should be because some of them in Treasury and other places think we have a conflict of interest, which is too much. As I always say to them, like you know, as if you don't have a conflict of interest, we all have a conflict of interest. And it's very obvious what that is, but we all want a good society and we want the right thing done. Now, we know what's stopping it happening and you have to start listening to us. Uh, Kate Carnell's office is small business ombudsman is another important point there. So that's, and I know that's not an answer now, but it's certainly something that has to happen is that those in the business world that just shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's the way it is, they, they need to be ignored. The people, um, we don't believe... Um, What's our latest expression? We don't say, let the market decide. I'll leave that to others to, to say that. We say, let's make sure the market can decide. We believe in a free market. We believe in free trade agreements. We believe in all that. But at the moment, we say, if you just close your eyes, you're going to end up with a situation like we've got now where people are winning tenders and then underpaying the staff. That couldn't happen. Yeah, and I guess this is more a question for you, Peter, but also for you, Chris. Uh how do we get small businesses who are maybe just starting out in the industry or have even possibly been around for a long time to understand that, you know, okay, you might win the contract today, but three years from now, you're going to be at a world of pain, especially, and I see this time and time again, okay, so you go in, you win a contract on a 4% margin or whatever it may be. For whatever reason, the person that you're now contracting to allows your payments to blow out to 60 days or 90 days. And you're paying your staff on your overdraft, which is 6 or 7%. You're uh -huh. now losing money on that contract. So, okay, you won the contract, but you've just shot yourself in the foot and destroyed your business in the process. How do we get or how do we help small businesses understand price is not the only factor and sometimes you're better off just 
and I know this is very easy for me to say. I can see the comments at the bottom of this page screaming at me at the bottom of it. So, but sometimes it, you're better to walk away. No, sometimes oh. you are better to walk away. Sometimes oh, you've got to select the client that you want, not yeah. the client that you can get. Yep. Um, you you talked about the interest rate that you've got to pay when you when your customer doesn't pay you in 60, 90, 120 days. What about when a government decides that you're now going to pay 1.8% for a long service leave levy yep. or mm-hmm. there's a 3% pay increase on the 1st of July uh, or some other cost that will, will in, come to in you. Victoria, transportable lo- straight away. Yeah, in Victoria, transportable long service leave. You're now yep. paying long service to someone who may not even be with your company in five years. And won't be with your company in five years. 75% of those people won't be with that company in five years. And yep. they won't be with another company. They'll be out of the industry. But you will have paid from day one from that person 1.8%. And they may even have a second job as security, which a lot of people do. So... Look, what we try to do is educate our members and provide service to our members so that they understand what they're getting themselves into, what costs are going to be involved. There's a lot of naivety out there, unfortunately. We get a lot of members who start off, they've been working for a, for a larger organisation, they see that they might be able to do something themselves. They get one or two or three employees and they, they start building and building and building. But the as soon as they get that wrong customer, mm. you know, that, that, that one looks really good and shiny on the outside but ain't so good on the inside, that's when those sorts of things happen. And it's our job, I believe, as an industry association, to provide them with all of the services and all of the advice and all of the assistance that we possibly can for them to be able to avoid those situations become profitable organisations. Yeah, and it may not... Yeah, so- Sorry, go on, Peter. Yeah. No, no, I, I totally agree. And what, so one of the other issues that we're looking at, again, none of these are going to be overnight solutions. Yet, no. if we all do it together, uh, if we could get that solution, is getting more businesses to join their association. Yeah. And then so associations, and it depends on what industry you're in. Some are quite firm. You can't join unless you have certain licenses and those sorts of things. As I say, it depends on the industry. But the, all the regulators have said, that they have less problems with it, with uh, businesses that are members of associations mm. than those that aren't. Yeah. So if we can get, um, and I've talked to various government ministers about this, saying, okay, let's talk about a better tax um, break for uh, membership fees. I don't know, well, we've got to investigate all this. I mightn't work. But to get people to join associations is really important. And we know they often think, oh, that's, I don't need to join the association. It's not important to me. Yet what we offer is extraordinary. Not all of us, you know, there's some that aren't, but what I say, 90% of associations, proper associations, are, are, well, they're there for a very good reason. And, you know, we're, a lot of us are struggling to get money because the world's changing, things are different. But we've got to get governments to say, yes, we understand being a member of an association is good. There might be rewards saying if you're a member of this particular association, you won't get a visit from the tax office unless, unless a a red flag does pop up. You know, there's certain things that will show the government agencies that you're probably bona fide as a business. Now, when it comes to tendering, hopefully what that means is they'll come back and they'll be they'll have to potentially say to someone, yes, I've, got, I've been through the training course offered by my association, whatever it is, and I am a bona fide business. Now, then we go back to the people that assess the tenders and say, well, are you accepting tenders from people that aren't a member of the association, and why are you doing that? Yeah. Now, just because you're not a member of an association doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to bid, but I would argue, why aren't you a member of an association? Yeah, although I guess that's an interesting discussion because that comes back to free choice, and just like you, yep. you've got to have yep. free markets, you've got to give people the right to choose to be or not choose to be an association, and just like... Yep just like companies have to be able to provide or prove value of service to people in order to get them to pay above market rates, then associations like ASIL, and I think they are doing it, have to be able to prove to the industry, well, this is the value that we're providing and why you want to be a member of us. Um, Yep. Yep. Chris, sorry, go on, Peter. No, no, I I agree. Yeah. Uh, Chris, you touched on before penalties because this is a carrot and stick world in which we live unfortunately you can provide all the education and all the lobbying in the world but sometimes people just don't learn without a good hard smack 
I mean, what are the penalties around this sort of thing for non-compliance? Surely if someone is doing the wrong thing, then they have to be held accountable for it. Well, there are certainly penalties under the Fair Work Act if you breach Section 550, if you, if you underpay wages and so on. And there's plenty of examples in, uh, in, in the papers and in, in uh, you know, the, the professional organ- magazines and so on where people have been prosecuted and, and, and uh, there's a lot of money uh, in fines. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what exactly each yep. fine is, but sometimes what we find, though is that uh, an organisation that's, say, under investigation by the Fair Work Ombudsman and they're taken to the federal court uh, and they're found guilty, uh, what we find is, like in the criminal jurisdictions, the judge says, oh, we'll combine all of the penalties together because it's really one breach instead of all of these single breaches. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really condenses it down. I'll give you an example. We know that the Fair Work Ombudsman with some advice from us, some intel from us, uh, attempted to prosecute a security company that hadn't paid superannuation up to the value of nearly $250,000 and underpayment of wages over $90,000. And it took them two years to get a prosecution. Not one cent was paid back by that security company because of the way they've played the system. Yep. They went into liquidation, all of that sort of stuff, you know, popped up again as another security company and so on. At the end of that, the judge gave an $8,000 fine. Now, these people owed more than $300,000 and they got an $8,000 fine. Now, that's gone to appeal. We know that. But the amount of money that the Fair Work Ombudsman probably had to outlay to get to that point where the judge just gives an $8,000 fine would have been 10 times that much, probably 20 times that much. Like the criminal jurisdiction, when people get to the point where they've been found guilty and they're properly prosecuted for what they've done, they should be fined to the full extent that the law allows. Now, recently we've seen um, the new... Um, the new Fair Work Ombudsman, Sandra Parker, she's indicated that that sort of thing's going to happen. Yep. Um, so th- there are heavy fines. And yep. look, some people should not be fined at all. If, they're, if, they're, if they've done the wrong thing because they're ignorant, uh, then there should be some kind of, if you like, some rehabilitation program where they, they learn how to do the thing the right way. If they've made the honest mistake, if they've used myob and it hasn't worked properly for them, and, it, and the security industry award is a very complex award, uh, if they've made honest mistakes, then they should be given an opportunity to fix it. But if they're recalcitrant people who have deliberately gone about setting up a business model uh, that exploits employees... They should be prosecuted. They should be prosecuted to the full extent. But is there not some... I, uh, Sorry, Peter, go on. I, I absolutely agree. We actually ran a roundtable the year before last about um, workplace relations and because of what was happening with um, 7-Eleven, et cetera, mm-hmm. and, and small business. And at the end of it, we put a communique out saying, well, there's no choice. If, if the, these are the laws. You obey them. Now, we are going to work with the with the government sector to make the system simpler, so it's harder to make honest mistakes, and that makes it harder for dishonest people to, to fiddle with it, and it makes it easier for the regulator to catch those people. But we had some associations question why we were doing that. They didn't think that was the right thing to do. So yeah. there's again, we've got to look within, and certainly not not you know, not the security association. But there's some out there who still don't understand that we live in the modern world where trust is so valuable and so lacking for a lot of people. You see that with elections, etc. And we have to be leaders in this area. And we did that roundtable. It was questioned by some and we criticised them for not turning up, saying we have to send that message to recalcitrant employers. And there's not that many, but there's enough to, to make competition unfair and give the rest of us a bad name. So... We're out there constantly saying, go get them. We support our regulators. We work with our regulators to make sure they do a good job as well. And this is how we're going to fix it. Now, we then challenge the unions to do the same thing. 
um, because they don't like being regulated, as we know. Well, it's not all of them, but there's too many don't like it. So we've got to be on this same path together. And, you know, your association is really doing a fabulous job, as, as are others, and we want to promote that constantly and say, look what we're doing. We are contributing members of our society, and so are our members. The people that are letting us down aren't just the ones that are underpaying, but they're the ones who allow a system of tendering that lets, lets, lets that happen. But it seems to me in this industry especially that there are a few bad apples that tend to give the, the bunch a bad name. And whilst there might be the odd one here and there who, to your point earlier, Chris, makes a genuine mistake, there's a few of them that are repeat offenders. And with this whole concept of phoenixing, where, you know, we shut our business down and then we miraculously open up two suburbs away under a new name, is there not provision, and forgive my ignorance in this, but is there not provision within the Fair Work Ombudsman or someone like that to, if they're found to have been doing the wrong thing under their previous company, not only find them, but say, and we're shutting down this company because you can't just do the same thing again under a different name. Well, certainly Phoenix yeah, well, is not a legal process. Yep. Um, and there are opportunities with both the Ombudsman and, say, SLED in New South Wales Security Licensing Enforcement Division. When, the, when people find out about... Uh, when the regulators find out about phoenixing, they do something about it. It's not always that easy. Um, I won't say how easy it is to do to to phoenix because I don't want to give people yeah. uh, the the opportunity to try it. But uh, you know, phoenixing, phoenixing is uh, is one way that they they tend to do these things. But it does catch up with them eventually. Yeah. Yeah. What they're bringing in the director number, the yeah. director identification number, which is one way that they're going to identify that there's a director that's been involved in you know, several uh, companies that have closed down. So they are putting things in place, and certainly the phoenixing legislation that's recently gone through is also looking at that. So if I can come back, there's some, for a while there, there were some um, groups that didn't want to go too hard on phoenixing, and because the people that suffer from it aren't just employees, it's other businesses. Mm. It's the contractors to those that are, are phoenixing. So look, we very we very much support hunting them, and I think the director identification number is going to go a long way to, to rectifying that. Yep. Okay. All right. Let me ask one final question in closing. Then, how do we improve our procurement practices? How do we make this situation better? And perhaps Peter, if we can start with you. Uh, look, it's education of those who put the tenders out to start off with. It's an education of them about how business functions, what costs we have, what on costs we have, um, how to identify a good business and how to identify those that you might want to worry about and the fact that it should never just be based on price. Education sounds like something ASIO should be doing. Chris, perhaps you'd like to respond. Well, I think we have been doing a lot of education. Um, I totally agree with Peter. Um, I think there are a few extra things that we can do. You, you've got to educate all parts of the marketplace, not just the, the, the suppliers and the people at the top of the supply chain, but everyone all the way through. Uh, we're an entry-level industry. You know, a lot of people come into us and they don't know their rights as employees, for instance. And you know, we know the union only has about 10% membership in the security industry, so their influence is, is reasonably limited. I've got away from it a little bit, but you know, Peter's right. We need to educate the, the, uh, the top end of the supply chain. We need to get government to force that education within their own ranks and to, and to step up and, and play the game the right way. We need to get big business to be prepared to do that as well. And we need to be able to show people what a reasonable price is for the, for the product or the service, particularly in our industry, without breaching any sort of uh, any legislative requirements like the Trade Practices Act. But as far as an association goes, we need to continuously attempt to improve the professionalism of the people who are our members and have that recognised by the users of, of our, our members as being part of the standard that, that uh, others should aspire to and that they should use as a minimum standard 
for using a uh, or procuring a security provider. Sure. Peter, I'm aware that uh, we've reached a point where you need to move on. So uh, how do people find Cosby? Uh, go to the website and send us an email and we will be in contact um, as soon as we can. As I said, we've got a big organisation, but you know, we, have, we have one role and that's to influence government and government agencies. Okay, and what's your website? Cosboa.org.au Peter, thank you very much for your time and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Chris, just in uh, in closing, if people want to find out more about you know procurement practices and what ASIL can do for them in this area and what they could possibly be doing right or wrong, where do they go? Well, they can go to the ASIL website, of course. Uh, they can email me, chris at asil.com.au. I take a lot of those sorts of calls. Um, but... Uh, you know, if, you, if you're a member of an industry association, ask the questions, take part. Don't sit back and wait to find out what the industry... It's a bit like the old uh, John F. Kennedy saying, ask not what the industry can do for you, ask what you can do for the industry. Sure. I know that's a bit uh, clichéd, but become involved. The more you're involved, the more you learn, the, the better you are. As, a, as an as an organisation. Absolutely. Chris, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Peter Strong, thank you very much for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen who are listening, don't forget you can go to uh, cosboa.org.au or you can go to the ASIL website, which is, Chris? www.asial.com.au And don't forget this is one of a series of podcasts being put out by ASIL, so be sure to check out some of the others. If you've missed any of the uh, conversations, they're available on iTunes, Spotify, Android, uh, and through a range of other podcasting solutions. And we look forward to joining you again for the next one.